We are 2 Samuel chapter 13 to 18. It's uh, six chapters. And uh, this should be fun. Um, just want to remind us of where we've been. Last week we shared communion together. And uh, the week before that we were in our series of 2 Samuel. So I want to make sure we remember what came previous in chapters 11 and 12. Which was the very famous story of David and Bathsheba. Where David abused his authority and took for himself another man's wife named Bathsheba. He impregnated her. And in an effort to cover up that sin, he... Uh, did a whole bunch of other sins, one on top of another, each one building on the other. And uh, it was a horrible situation. And the result of that was that uh, his child died. Um, Uriah, who was Bathsheba's husband, was put to death. Lots of blood on David's hands. One of the things that we learned from this is that there is a difference between sin's result uh, as far as penalty goes, the, the penalty for sin, and also the consequences for sin. And if you recall in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David repents and he confesses his sin to Nathan. And Nathan replies to David that the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. In other words, the penalty for David's sin is death. And yet God, because David had repented and confessed his sin, does not carry out the penalty of David's sin. Instead, however, God allows the consequences for sin to remain. And we see that in chapter 12, starting in verse 14, where the Lord says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. That's one of the consequences for David's sin. And when you look back to chap, uh, chapter 12, verses 10 through 12, you also see where God says this. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you, are, you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. In other words, God says, I'm going to take the, the penalty of your sins. So that way you don't have to die because of what you've done. But I'm going to allow the consequences for your sins to remain. And what we have in chapters 13 through 18 is the unfolding story of what those consequences are. How the sword does not depart from David's house. There is great evil that comes to David's family. There is death and there's chaos. There's deception and lying. There's all kinds of things. And all of that flows out of David's sin with Bathsheba. Which reminds us, and I think it would be so helpful for us as Christians to make sure that we understand there is a distinction between sin's penalty and sin's consequence. Jesus has taken our penalty and we no longer have to fear death but many of the consequences for our sin still remain and we need to understand that so we have six chapters I'm not going to be able to read all of them so what I'm going to do is give us a quick overview quick is a relative term <laughs> we're going to start in chapter 13 so if you have a bible and you're a speed reader and you're able to do this kind of stuff and you just go through fine do that but here's briefly what happens in these six chapters. Chapter 13. 
One of David's sons named Absalom, who was a handsome man, had a full-blooded sister named Tamar. And they had a half-brother named Amnon. Amnon saw Tamar, recognized her beauty. She was a beautiful woman. And became infatuated with her to the point that he could not stop thinking about her. And thinking about her all day long, every day, made him sick. But he knew he couldn't touch her, seeing that she is his sister. However, Amnon had a friend. And this friend came to Amnon and helps him devise this wicked plan in order to deceive King David into allowing Tamar to become his nurse. And in order to do that, Amnon needs to pretend to be sick. And so they devise this plan and they execute it to perfection. Tamar becomes Amnon's nurse. When Amnon pretends to be sick, she comes near to him to feed him and to give him something to drink and things like that, you know, just to take care of him. He grabs her and he forces his, himself upon her and he rapes her. Tamar leaves that scene emotionally distraught for having been ravaged by her half-brother. Absalom sees her and asks her the simple question, has Amnon done this to you? And then Absalom knows in that moment, I'm going to get revenge. I'm going to get him. So he makes this plan that he's going to kill Amnon. In order to do it, he deceives his father David, holds this gigantic feast of which David would not go. And there he strikes down Amnon. And that was in the plans and in the works, the Bible says, for two whole years. Absalom then flees to his maternal grandmother's house in a place called Geshur. And he lives there as a fugitive for three years. Chapter 14, Joab, who was David's military commander, knew that David was really heartbroken and upset about the fact that his daughter Tamar had been raped and Amnon was the one who did it. In addition to that, now Amnon has been killed. So Joab devises this plan that he's going to find this, this woman who's a wise woman from a place called Tekoa. And he puts into her mind uh, what it is that she's supposed to say. She then goes into King David's presence. She says all that Joab says to her, convincing him to bring back Absalom from his, from his you know, being an outcast and, and uh, being a fugitive. And David sees right through it, being a wise man himself. And he says, who put you up to this? And she confesses Joab is the one who did it. And so he said, okay. So he goes to Joab and he says, fine, bring the young man to me. But here's the thing. I don't want to see him and I don't want to look at him. You can bring him back here, but he's going to live in his own house and he's going to be away from me. I don't want anything to do with him. And so for a number of years, that's exactly what has happened. Two whole years, Absalom lives by himself, not being allowed to be in the king's presence. He gets fed up. It's like being on house arrest. So he goes back to Joab and he convinces Joab to help him to be reunited with his father. And in a heartwarming scene... Absalom comes into David's presence. David welcomes him. Absalom falls on his knees, pays homage to the king. The king kisses him. And you feel like, oh, yes, father and son, reunited. We can make a Hallmark movie about this. <laughs> However, it does not last. Chapter 15. Absalom does everything that is needed to posture himself as a true king. He gets chariots and horses. He hires men to accompany him. And then he becomes a great politician. He goes to the gate where people come to have their, their, you know, their cases kind of, I don't know, talked about to decide on what they should do about certain things. And so he puts himself at the gate and, and the people come with their problems and he says, oh, 
If only I would be appointed by the king, I could plead your case and I could give you justice. If only I was in charge, if only I could help, but I, I, I can't. And so he steals the hearts of the people and they love Absalom because he promises them as a good politician that he will do for them everything that they want because oddly enough, his convictions match uh, the exact things that the poll the polls say the people love. So Absalom then decides that since he's just stolen the hearts of the people, he's able to now execute his plan. His plan is to go north to a place called Hebron. And there he would take with him hundreds of people. And he sent a secret message out to all the tribes of Israel that when you hear the trumpet blast, go out and proclaim that Absalom is king. And that's exactly what happens. He goes to Hebron, deceiving his his father David, about why he's going there. They blow the trumpet, the people come out, and they proclaim Absalom is king. And there, the conspiracy to overthrow David and to take the, king for, the, the throne for himself continues to grow and strengthen. David hears what's happening, recognizes the reality that Absalom is probably going to come back to Jerusalem and throw them out of the city, and there's probably going to be a lot of bloodshed. So instead of dealing with that, David instead gathers his family and gathers the people who are his trusted and loyal um, followers. And they head east out of the city of Jerusalem to a place called the Mount of Olives. Chapter 16. While they're heading out to the Mount of Olives, David is greeted by two different, two, two different men. One of them, his name is Ziba. Ziba is the servant of a man named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan, David's best friend. David had given Mephibosheth a whole plot of land and a lot of riches. And Ziba, when he encounters David, gives him um, some resources and then convinces David that Mephibosheth has flipped. And so David in response says, fine, then you take everything that was Mephibosheth's. It's yours now. Once again, David has been deceived. He encounters a second man named Shammai. Shammai is walking on this hillside off, off to the side while all the people are making their way to the Mount of Olives. And he's flinging dust into the air like LeBron James. And he's, and he's cursing and he's yelling at David about all the wrong that he's ever done and all this kind of stuff. And so the people are saying, should we take this guy out? David says, no, let him, let him be. We won't retaliate. Maybe the Lord sent him to convict me of my sin. Let him be. And so they arrive at the Jordan River worn out and tired Meanwhile, Absalom makes his way into Jerusalem. He asks his officials what he should do first. And they said, here's what you should do. Pitch a tent on the roof. And in the full display of all of Israel, you should have sex with your father's concubines. And that's what he does. Chapter 17. On David's way out of the city, he encounters a man named Hushai. Hushai is a friend of his. And Hushai... Uh, asks David if he should accompany him. David says, no, actually, you can be better use for me. Here's what I want you to do. Go back into the city, and I want you to become a spy. And so David now has a man in Jerusalem to tell him everything that's happening. Hushai ends up being the very first man to greet Absalom as he returns to the city. And there Absalom wonders, okay, what should I do next? And so two men give their advice. Ahithophel is a man who is loved appreciated his wisdom is unmatched in fact whatever he says people usually did because they felt like his word was like the word of God and also Hushai and so Absalom asked these two men what should he do ultimately they go with Hushai's advice Ahithophel then goes home commits suicide because he figures there's nothing else to live for they don't want me anymore 
But David has a string of spies. Hushai then tells two men, Zadok and Abiathar. They then tell a female servant. The female servant then tells two men, Jonathan and Ahimeaz. They all relay Absalom's plan to David. And David prepares himself for what's about to happen. Chapter 18. They go to war. The people of Absalom and the people of David, they finally have a battle in the forest. And of course, as you would expect, the people of David, the army of David, they totally rout the people of Absalom. And along the way, Absalom is riding on a mule. And he's going through the forest. And he has a big, thick head of hair. And you can read about that. It's kind of weird. But he has about five pounds of hair on his head. It, it literally, it says that, 200 shekels. And so he's riding on his mule. And there's low-hanging oak branches. And as he's riding on his mule, he gets his five-pound hair caught in a branch. The mule keeps walking. And he's dangling there. Joab's men come around the corner. They see Absalom. They go back to the commander, who's Joab, and they go, we found him. Joab comes and he strikes him dead. Messengers then go to David and tell him, David, your son Absalom is dead. David weeps for the loss of his son. Amnon's dead. Absalom's dead. And for all intents and purposes, Tamar will never be the same. And so he weeps. And those are our six chapters. The Bible may be a bunch of things, but the one thing the Bible is not is boring. So I encourage you, uh, your job from here on out is get with your small group and fill in the pieces, the blanks that I didn't get to, or, or read it on your own because there's so much in there. There's so much intrigue and plot twists and character development and things you did not anticipate. It's so good. So read it. But what I want to do is I'm going to hone in on one particular area. I want to hone in on chapter 13. And the, and, and the situation that happened between Amnon and Tamar that involved Absalom. Because I think this is something that all of us not only can relate to, but also because this scenario helps us to anticipate and helps us to long for Jesus. So let's read this together. Um, and we'll start in chapter 13, verse 2. Remember... Absalom, handsome man, his full-blooded sister Tamar, beautiful woman, and their half-brother Amnon loved her. Verse 2. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. You see his dilemma. He's like, man, I love this woman. I want her for my own. I can't touch her though because it's against the law. So then again, his friend helps him devise a plan where he can have her. Not legally, but by force. And so we pick it up in verse 10. Amnon says to Tamar, remember she's nursing him now, bring the food into the chamber that I may eat it from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes that she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him, he took hold of her and said to her, come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. Outrageous is the word ungodly. And what's really interesting about this scenario is verse 14, he doesn't listen to her, being stronger than her, he violates her, he rapes her. Chapter 13 comes on the heels of chapter 11 and 12. Chapter 11 and 12 is where David takes advantage of his authority and rapes Bathsheba. And I know last time I spoke I ruffled some feathers because you've never heard it said that way, but do you see why I say it the way I say it? It mirrors one another. 
David did this with Bathsheba. The consequences are many of those things are going to be reflected in his family. The very first story that you see involves a rape. And contextually, you put those two things together and you kind of say, well, it makes sense to call Bathsheba's experience a rape if we're going to call Tamar's experience a rape. They go hand in hand. One flows from the other. So Amnon knows that it's wrong. He knows that he should not do anything. He knows that he ought not to touch her. But he goes through with what he wants to anyway. Now reading through this text, the thing that struck me was Tamar. There's a question that she asks, which actually, I'll be honest with you, haunted me pretty much all week. Because I try to put myself in her shoes and I try to ask myself, if I were to ask that question, what would I be feeling and thinking as I asked it? So let's go back to verse 12 of chapter 13 and look at it. She answers him after he's taken hold of her, which should remind us that's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They saw the forbidden fruit and they took it. David saw Bathsheba from the roof and he eventually took her. Tamar comes into the chamber with Amnon and what does he do? He takes her. And then she says, no, my brother, do not violate me for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing, which is ironic because the very thing she's saying, don't do this. It's not done in in the nation of Israel. The people of God don't act like this. Little did she know that's exactly how her father acts. That's exactly how the king of Israel acted. Verse 13, as for me, and here's her question. Where could I carry my shame? Where can I go? To whom can I go? If you were to do this thing to me, if you're going to rape me, you're going to ruin my life. And I just asked myself the question, what in the world would she be thinking and feeling? Now, Amnon knows his guilt. He rapes her anyway. And in verse 15, he says that Amnon hated, it says that Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and go. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the one that you did to me. He would not listen to her. So he called the young men who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Tamar knew that what was happening to her was wrong, and she knew that it would result in her shame. We'll come back to the shame in a moment. But Amnon also knew that what he was doing was wrong, He knew that he was guilty of doing something horrible. The evidence is that when he looked at her after he had raped her, he could not stand the sight of her. And he threw her out like a used object. It's obvious that Amnon knew what he was doing was wrong. It's obvious that Tamar knew that what Amnon was about to do to her was wrong. Both of them are acting knowing that they face shame. 
Amnon thought he could get rid of his shame by getting rid of her. But Tamar is wiser. She knows I can't go anywhere and I can't go to anyone who's ever going to fix this. Her shame will always be with her. So I want to spend some time for the rest of this message to help us to unpack the difference between guilt and shame, but also to see how the two are related. Because I'm convinced that most of us in this room have at one time or another felt guilt. Our conscience has felt the weightiness of guilt. And I also know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is not a single person in this room watching online, listening to my voice, that is not acquainted with shame. I know that. That's what makes this message the most applicable that you may ever hear. So I want to spend some time defining guilt and shame. And I think one of the best ways to illustrate the two and how they're related and yet how they're distinct is this. Guilt is like a wound. It's like a wound. Somebody stabs you. You have a wound in your flesh. It's inflicted upon you. Your conscience or your heart feels it as pain. So think about that. Guilt is like a wound inflicted upon your conscience, which your heart feels as pain. And yet shame is accompanying that. It's a little bit different, though. It's not a wound. It's the scar. You see, when guilt finally is healed, there remains shame. Just like when your wound finally heals, there will remain a scar. Now, I played a lot of baseball and football growing up, and every once in a while, um, my kids or somebody will ask me, what's that? And I'll have, like, scars on my ankles and elbows and all this kind of stuff, and I'll have this story to tell them. And I may embellish. And it's kind of fun to relive those stories because all of our scars involve a story about our past. And so shame is something about the past. It's a scar. Though our wounds may heal, our scabs will go away. The scar that remains will linger for a long time. And so the lingering effect of shame reminds us day by day, hour by hour perhaps, of the pain that has been afflicted upon us. And that shame is often what we have that helps us shape our own identity and self-worth. What I mean is our shame often is the source by which we view ourselves and often the lens through which we look as we think about how other people must view us. And so we go about our lives thinking, I, I, I am this kind of person, or I think other people think that I am this kind of person. Those kinds of thoughts are the effects of shame. In his book, Life in the Wild, Fighting for Faith in a Fallen World, Pro Professor Dan DeWitt defines guilt and shame like this. Guilt is usually tied to an event. We say, I did something wrong. Shame is tied to a person. We say, I am wrong. When you violate God's law, you feel guilt. But that emotion is quickly, nearly simultaneously joined by shame. 
Guilt says you did something wrong. Shame says you need to hide. You are no good. You deserve to live in darkness. You better not come out. So guilt is associated with actions, while shame is an association that is more personal. Guilt is the feeling we have of being, of acting wrong, where shame is the feeling we have of being a wrong person. Shame is, affects our identity, how we view ourselves. Our self-worth, our value, our loveliness is all determined by the amount and the degree to which we feel and understand our shame. Now, since guilt is associated with actions, the, how do we resolve it? How do we resolve that sense that I have done something wrong? And the answer is, since it involves an action, what we should do is confess that action and seek forgiveness. You see, when David found out that he was wrong, when Nathan confronted him, do you remember what he did? He confessed his sin immediately. He repented of it, and God gave him forgiveness. In Psalm 51, we learn that David now says that he has been washed white as snow. He's now been clean. David did not receive the penalty for his sin. And you notice what happened in David's life. The, the guilt he felt for doing something wrong is tied to the penalty of his sin, which is death. But then you also see something different. And that is God said your consequences of your sin are going to remain. They're going to linger long after your guilt has been forgiven. And the consequences of shame, brothers and sisters, is oftentimes what we feel as shame. The lingering effects of sin. And how do we resolve our guilt? We learned a couple weeks ago that Jesus is the one who has absolved our guilt, has taken away our sin and its penalty. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And so we learn from that that our, pay, our, our debt to God because of sin has been paid. The penalty for sin has been absolved. We no longer have to fear eternal punishment from God, death everlasting. Our conscience is clean because of Jesus. However, the question remains, how do we deal with our shame? If we know how to resolve the wounds of sin and the guilt and to have a clean conscience by confessing and repenting of our sins, what do we do about the scars that remain, the lingering consequences of sin, the shame? In her book, Unashamed, Heather David Davis Nelson writes this. At its core, shame is the, fe is the fear of weakness, a fear of failure, a feeling of unworthiness. Or it's a fear that at least one person will notice that which we want to hide most. Shame commonly masquerades as embarrassment or the nagging sense that we are not quite good enough. It's the feeling that we have missed the mark according to our own standard or our perception of someone else's standard for us. Shame keeps us from being honest with our struggles, 
sins and our less than perfect moments. It's what a perpetrator gives to his victim as he violates her. And she will carry that shame forever unless she can find a way to bring it into the light of day. Shame will say to you, you don't belong here. You are unacceptable, you are unclean, and you are disgraceful. The shamed person feels worthless, expects rejection, is in need of cleansing, desires community, love, and acceptance. But because of their shame, we'll find none of it. Shame tells you that you are worthless. Shame tells you that you are an embarrassment. Shame tells you that you don't add up. Shame tells you that you are unlovely. Shame tells you that you are a failure. And it has nothing to do with your actions. It's about who you are. And there's not a person in this room who is not affected by shame. All of us are defining our identity and self-worth based on something. And many of those somethings are shameful moments in which somebody, our parents or a baseball coach or a, a teacher, said something to us. Not that you failed the exam, but you are a failure. Not that you acted badly, but you are bad. Not that you dress funny, but that you are weird. And those kinds of moments shape us. They shape our identity. They shape our worth. And so Tamar asked the question in verse 13, as for me, if you do this, if you rape me, where am I going to go? To whom am I going to go with my shame? This moment will now define me. This moment will now dictate my future. And what am I going to do with it? You're about to ruin my life. She feels worthless. She feels rejection now and knows rejection will always be her future. She is embarrassed. She is alienated from her community, her relationships will forever be changed. And so I asked the question, and she asked the question, what is she supposed to do now? Where is she supposed to go? Who is she supposed, who is she supposed to run to? And it says in verse 20 that Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother's house because he had violated her. She was now removed from the community of God's people to live a desolate life, alienated from others. And so my question is, as an Old Testament saint, what is Tamar supposed to do? And what's amazing is as you read forward in the Old Testament, you start to encounter one after another these these promises of God. Promises that God will one day address our shame in a person. And so we read in Isaiah 53, verses 3 through 5, that this person was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised or ashamed. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Whoever this person is, 
he bears not only our transgressions, but he bears also our shame. And the fact is, he will be crushed for us as a substitute. And remember that Tamar, remember when she left, she was wearing a robe that symbolized and, and, and told people outwardly that she was a virgin. She was clean. She was waiting for her husband. And after she was raped, she left that place and her identity, symbolized by her robe, she tears her robe, symbolizing that she now knows that she has a completely different identity. She is now no longer clean. She's no longer a worthy woman. She has been abused. And it says in verse 19 that she pours ashes on her head as she tears her robe. That is a symbol of utter grief, shame, humiliation. It reminds us of the Garden of Eden as well. If you remember when Adam and Eve were walking in the cool of the garden with God Almighty, they were naked and unashamed until they ate that forbidden fruit. And then all of a sudden their eyes were opened and they saw one another's nakedness, which is a symbol of shame. And so what did they do? They clothed themselves with fig leaves. Because the garment idea, the external things that we wear, oftentimes is an identifier to who we are. And so Adam and Eve is now identifying that they know their shame. They have a new identity. No longer are they carefree in a loving relationship with God. They know they are guilty and they're filled with shame. And they alienate themselves from God and from one another. But what does God do? Before Genesis 3 closes, we see that God comes and God sacrifices, the very first sacrifice in the Bible, and he strips them of their fig leaves and instead he clothes them with animal skins. And that is the moment we understand that God will clothe you. He will make a sacrifice and there will be a covering for shame but it won't come in our own efforts. It won't come by our own ingenuity. It will come from God. And when he clothed Adam and Eve with those new skins, and when he, and he clothed them and covered their shame, he gave them a new identity. You are no longer kicked out of my presence fully and finally, but I've clothed you. You're still mine. Likewise, Tamar, she needs new clothing. She needs a new identity. She needs to be clothed in the comforting arms and grace of God. But where's that going to come from? Where's she going to go? Who's she going to turn to? And rustling through the pages of the Old Testament is that promise. Someone's coming. Someone's going to come. And they're going to come for you tomorrow. Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, and it's that person speaking. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. Remember Tamar, she put ashes on her head. That was her garment, shame. That was her identity, worthless, unlovely, unaccepted, no longer belonging, unclean. 
But God says there's coming one who will proclaim to you a day when he will exchange those ashes of shame and place upon your head a beautiful headdress. And also the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment, notice the language, garment of praise instead of a faint spirit so that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, and that they may be glorified in verse 7. Instead of your shame, there will be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they will rejoice. Therefore, in the land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. There's a promise God makes that I know your guilt and I know your shame and I'm not doing nothing about it. I'm going to send someone who will bear your shame and bear your transgressions and will be crushed in your place. I'm sending someone who will proclaim good news of liberty and wholeness and beauty and gladness and praise. I'm sending one who will rescue you, who would absolve your shame and guilt. I'm sending one that you can turn to tomorrow. I didn't leave you alone. There's not a person here who is not dealing with shame. And there's not a person here who has not had or entertained the thought, because I feel this way, God must not accept me. It's not true. God has promised there's coming someone who will give you new garments, who will take your ashes and give you gladness and joy. The question is, who, who is that? Tomorrow asks, to whom will I go? To where will I go? She didn't have an answer. She only had a promise. We live in the New Testament time where it's no longer merely a promise. Brothers and sisters, we have our answer. We have the answer to guilt. We have the answer to shame. We have the answer to the feelings of feeling unworthy unlovely, despised, no longer belonging, unclean. We have the answer. You want to hear it? Here it is. Hebrews chapter 12. The, the writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, brothers and sisters, those words are like a salve for our soul. You are surrounded by fellow witnesses who also feel shame, but also know how to be healed. It's the community of God's people. It's called the church. Shame often tells you don't gather with the church when in fact the Bible says your healing is found when you gather with the church. You telling me NFL football has something better for you than to be healed of your shame and to receive joy from the presence of the Lord with the fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord? You must have a low expectation for joy. I don't want to leave joy on the table. If God has offered me infinite joy, inexpressible and glorious joy, I'm not going to settle for football. And then he goes on to say, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, 
All of us who are acquainted with shame know that that is exactly how it feels. We know we ought to run the race and follow Jesus, but it feels like we have children strapped to our ankles and we're just dragging them along. You know what I'm talking about. You've, you've been a parent or at least a babysitter. You know what it's like trying to get those kids off you. You can't run. You can only drag them. And we got, we got guilt and shame dragging us back and we cannot run the race. And so what it says is, look, we got to let that stuff go. We need to get rid of it so we can run. The question is, well, how do you do that? Sounds great. Put it in a greeting card. I want to know how to do it. Verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. That's how you do it. You look to Jesus. And it says that he, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, what Jesus did at the cross was despise the very shame that so hinders us. It was a shameful thing for Jesus. He was publicly displayed as a criminal, naked, beaten, weak, despised, rejected, sorrowful. And yet it was at the cross that he bore our shame and our sins and the penalty of sins. How was he able to do all that? How was Jesus able to endure shame and suffering? The verse says in verse 2, it was because of the joy that was set before him. Now the question is, well, what is the joy? It was being reunited with the Father. The joy of being reunited with the Father is what allowed Jesus to endure the cross and to overcome shame and to be healed. It is also the place in which we are healed. We read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. So what happens when we come to God? Did Jesus went to the cross to bring us to God, to reunite us with God. What happens when that happens? What happens when we come to God? Psalm 1611 says this, you make known to me the paths of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now when you look at Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2, who is sitting at the right hand of the throne of God? It is Jesus. Psalm 1611 says, at the right hand of God is pleasure. Put the two together. And when I look at that, I start to realize Jesus is not just a moral teacher. Get that nonsense out of your head. Jesus is more than that. He's my pleasure. He's my joy. He's my savior. He's resolved sin. He's overcome death. He absolves guilt. He's taken my shame upon himself and has set me free. So God makes a sacrifice to cover your shame, to clothe you with a new identity. As Acts 20, 28 says, by the blood of Jesus, he bought the church. And so we, brothers and sisters, no longer have to ever utter the words, do I belong? Of course you belong. How do I know? Because he bought the church. Am I unlovely? 
Well, he demonstrated his love for you in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Am I worthless? No, you are not worthless. God demonstrates your worth by sending his own son, Jesus, who by his blood bought you. So though you are unworthy of that, meaning you can't do anything to deserve it, it does not mean you are worthless. You are a a person possessing great worth. And because of God's grace, you can know that to be true. The promise in Isaiah 61 was there's a beautiful headdress that awaits instead of ashes. There's gladness instead of mourning. There's praise instead of being faint-hearted. So, brothers and sisters, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Who is your joy? Who is your pleasure? Our shame is usually tied to the past. Our past sins, our past failures, our past abuses committed against us. Our shame is about those words that were spoken to us and that are etched in our memory that shape and form our identity. Our shame is what tells us we are unlovely and miserable and unclean. And yet the cross of Christ and the empty tomb speak a better word. You are welcome. You are lovely. You can be forgiven. There is freedom. And you can run. The remedy, since shame is always something that we do reminiscing about the past, we must realize also that the remedy itself is something that's in the past. The remedy for shame is the finished work of Jesus Christ some 2,000 years ago. The remedy for our shame is to remember that Jesus not only was crucified and buried, but Jesus has risen. And because he has risen, he has proven that the identity we once had has been replaced by a new one. You are new creations. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. And therefore, all that Jesus says of us, all that he declares us to be, and all the accolades and all the ways that he informs us about our new identity, all of those things are true. And our identity must be shaped by them. So when shame arises, brothers and sisters, here's what we need to do. We must confront it with the good news of great joy, which is for all the people. Christ Jesus has come so that you may be free. When we celebrate Christmas, it's more than just, oh, isn't that cute, that little baby? What Jesus has come has begun a revolution to overthrow the power of evil and sin. And Jesus came vulnerable as a baby. And so when the angels declared that night, I have great news, a good news of great joy. Part of that message is there's now healing from shame. There's a lot that could be said, but I'm going to finish with Heather David Nelson. She writes this. Into the dark hopelessness of the human condition steps a person who, as Isaiah describes, will surely bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. It is in relationship with this grief-laden Savior that our shame will begin to dissipate. It is through his vulnerability that we learn to entrust ourselves to fellow broken people called the church. It's through union with Christ that you are clothed with honor rather than shame. 
You are made part of a community to which you will always belong. And you are given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Shame will linger for as long as we await the life to come, but its voice will become quieter and its claims less insistent as we remember the reality that its hold on us is limited and it is fleeting. A day is coming, brothers and sisters, where God and Jesus will descend and usher in the new heavens and the new earth where there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more shame, no more death. Always and forever we will live free with him. And to that end... We wait. And we remind ourselves constantly, we may not be worthy of his love, but it does not mean we are worthless. That though we see ourselves as unlovely, God has demonstrated his love for us. And now our guilt is cleansed. Our shame has been borne on the cross. And brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, you can be free. That's what we need to hear today, Lord. There's probably not a day that goes by that somebody sitting here today is not confronted by their shame. So, Lord, you have given us a remedy. You've given us, demonstrated for us, reminding us of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save the lost. For those who are sick, he came to heal For those who are weary and tired and heavy laden, he beckons us, come that you may find rest. So Lord, I pray that you would draw your people to yourself and you would grant them what you promised. Grant them rest. Let them run freely in the joy of the Lord. And help them to know how much you love them. So God, would you do these things for us? We need it. And we'll give you the thanks for what you show us, for your glory, for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.